0: When I conducted my interview with Doug C. Brown, you know, sometimes these conversations, these interviews take me back to a place that is both, I would say, sometimes sorrowful, but also liberating at the same time. A quick story, you know, growing up, I thought I could write, and then the educational system would mark my papers with a B minus, and so I assumed the narrative. I was not a good writer. I put myself in a box with no support system to unleash my truest potential. And now I've written a book. I've written a book that people are reading. And honestly, it was about taking back control, knowing that you have the power. And in our conversation, Doug C. Brown talks about resourcefulness and challenging. The status quo. Don't own the narrative. Don't put yourself in a box. You have everything from within to achieve your potential. Let's listen.
1: There's not a big difference between a multi six figure business and a seven figure business, but there are differences, and there's certainly a difference from a six figure business to a seven figure business. So, in order to do that, a lot of times we as the entrepreneur we have to challenge the status quo of our own head because many people hold themselves back from growing because they lack, let's say, cash or cash flow at that time. But what they really lack is resourcefulness because resources aren't usually the problem. Being resourceful is the challenge. The bottom line is there's a lot of things that are there that when people are resourceful, they can actually make things happen. But that requires us as leaders in our own business
0: If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, I am Deb Cobiello, founder of Illumination Partners, and I am grateful that you have joined us for another episode of the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I have the good fortune week over week speaking to amazing leaders and share their insights with you. If you like this episode, I would appreciate, please subscribe, rate, review, and so we can continue to bring you great programming. And now it is my honor, really my honor to share the mic with my fantastic guest, Doug C. Brown. Doug is a highly acclaimed sales revenue growth expert and international best-selling author. He has coached, consulted, and advised thousands of people in business as well as companies, including Enterprise Rent-A-Car, Nationwide, Intuit, Procter & Gamble, CBS Television, and many others. And he has collected and Impressive amount of experience uh, in various fields, especially in sales. And he has served as an independent president of sales and training for Tony Robbins, Chet Holmes, Rut Whitney, and others. And Finally, he has generated over $500 million in sales. His last client made $3 million in five weeks. And his most outstanding professional achievement is increasing the company's close rate by over 800% and the revenue growth over 116% in four months. And probably most important, he is a 12-year veteran of the U.S. Army and a proud father of two wonderful daughters. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the show.
1: Thank you, Deb. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, that introduction made me sound pretty important. So I appreciate that.
0: (laughs) You know, Doug, you are important because during our discovery call, your insights about, you talk about selling with value. Mm -hmm. You talk about sales and really what it takes to be successful. It is not that hard. You break it down so wonderfully. And you know, the other thing that made you really interesting is your backstory about sales and your daughters, your daughter, Jacqueline sold you, pitched you and introduced you to me Mm -hmm. as somebody that would be of value. So what you do has transcended into your family. She positioned you as somebody of value that I should speak to. So I'm grateful for that grateful for the conversation and would love for you to share your story, your personal story, your business journey, and the work that you're doing now. Okay.
1: Yeah. I, um, and thank you for the compliment on Jacqueline. Her sister is equally as skilled in, in communication as she is. I, you know, I started working when I was three years old. So I worked for my father's business. I would sweep floors all week long throughout his, he had an industrial machinery repair company. I would be there and, you know, I'd hang out with him and, and uh, the rest of the people. And I made 25 cents a week. And it was the best job I think I ever had, right? <laughs> when it came down to it, I got to hang out with my father and my family. And on penny candy day at the end of the week, I had 25 cents. So I was pretty popular amongst my friends, you know, three, four or five year olds. So I did that. My dad actually put us out in front of clients when we were about five and a half or six. And I don't know if it was by design. I don't know if he just was trying to teach us something. I I, I never had the chance to ask him after I've thought about it. But, you know, maybe he just needed low-cost labor. I don't know. But the point being is I learned a lot. I learned how to write orders. I learned how to talk to people. I learned how to do, you know, flipping numbers in my head, looking at production, all that stuff from a very early age. And I worked with my father's business. And had some sideline companies all the way through school. Then my father actually had a heart attack, and I ended up running his business when I was seventeen years old. My other brothers are older than I am, significantly older, and they had been out on their own uh, doing things. So it was it was a great experience working with my dad, and I think that's really what kind of put the foundation together, as well as my mother. My mother was more the salesperson in the in the family. She used to sell Avon. Uh, she was a nurse. And she used to do Avon and she used to make really great money back then in Avon. And I remember helping her, you know, with the commissions and figuring out what the numbers are and seeing all the cash at the end of the week. And it really kind of sparked my my imagination around, okay, maybe working for an hourly wage is probably not the thing to do. And how do I get leverage out of that? So that kind of continued on. I went into the military at 19, had 35 companies over my lifetime. Some I started very young some did extremely well, some didn't do well at all, and some broke even. It's been kind of a varied journey. And through my process and a pathway, dev, this is how I've kind of you know worked with some of these bigger companies, been able to support some of the bigger training companies and 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 kind of make that way. So I've, I learned sales all the way through my life. And then I re- realized later on, oh, there's something formalized that I could actually put my Self into, and that's how uh, that's how I uh, started growing with sales revenue growth and helping companies grow. Because I would look at businesses and I'd go, "Wait a minute, this doesn't just seem right." But I, a lot of this is from the the upbringing that I had, and we would correct it, and magically the businesses would grow.
0: And thank you for all of that. As a you know, technical professional, ooh, sales, they don't teach us that. You know, when we're giving presentations, it's about the information and the technical credibility and feasibility and risks and opportunities. But you know what? I kind of wonder in how we deliver messaging and how we connect with humans, could they have better prepared a technical person for the sales role? But my question is then, because you're obviously servicing many, but there are others who have not leveraged your skills. What are typically the pain points that a CEO or a senior person in the sales area is feeling that they just can't see for themselves, where you come in and you see the opportunity and you help them through that transition. What's an example or how are they feeling? Who's that perfect client that doesn't realize they're a perfect client that needs your services?
1: (laughs) Well, it's the CEO or the owner of the company who's saying to themselves, I know we can do better. I know it. I, I, I know we can do better. And I know why we're not growing or I have no idea why we're not growing, why we're stuck. And or that CEO or business owner that's also saying, you know, I have a sales team today. I'm not fully convinced that they're performing at their top level. Now, that could be due to the sales members. That could be due to the process in the company. That could be due to the leadership in the company. That could be due to a lot of different things. But they know that there's something not working for their company. And it never ceases to amaze me because they're immersed in the company day to day, they can't see certain things that an outside point of eyes who's skilled in growing companies can actually see. And so that's usually what happens. I come in there and I look at the company and I go, okay, you're doing these things great. You could optimize these three out of the seven and you're missing two. And that's usually what happens. I just had this happen. um, When was it? Three days ago, actually, with a a client. They, They had no referrals going on in the companies at all for years. So I'm like, hey, guys, why don't you uh, put a referral program in? They haven't even put an active one in yet. In their first two days, they got 21 referrals.
0: Money on the table, untapped potential. Mm -hmm. So what else are they typically missing? So you talk about people, process, and leadership. Just curious. I mean, what's what's an example of somebody that you've recently worked with or or anybody that maybe they were not willing to change or try what you did, but you were able to help them? Because that, too, could be with the leader that maybe they're holding back the opportunity.
1: Well, the leader is generally the person holding back the opportunity. You know, a lot of times I have to have that conversation because being an entrepreneur myself, I understand some of the complexities that they face. But typically, what happens is a lot of owners in, I'll say, smaller companies. And in my world, kind of a smaller company is like five to 15 million uh, in revenue. They've, you know, they were the person who started the company, they grew that company to whatever. So it's their baby and they have a hard time letting go because they don't have places of safety that they can actually let go and get feedback and mechanisms on the process. So they'll tend to do things like try to be the CEO and the sales manager and the head of operations all at one time. Essentially, what they've done is built a business on their back, even though they're doing, you know, say $15 million, they have some cash and usually cash reserves, but they don't have freedom. And you know, so their personal life is suffering in many ways. Many times, it's it's that type of thing, or they're holding on so tight, and they're so afraid of letting go that they're micromanaging people to the point where they their people can't even grow, or you know, won't even uh, contribute ideas because they're afraid of retribution from from somebody going in, in in that direction. So there's a lot of lot of reasons. Somebody, um, a very successful guy uh, last week actually said this to me, and I agree. He said, "You know, as a CEO of a company or an owner of a company, if you're going to run the run the game, you got to reinvent yourself every three to five years. You have got to become a new person in order for your company to grow. Or it'll get stuck. And this is a guy who's built several, um, you know, multi-eight-figure companies. So I agree with him, and I think that's where the leaders get stuck. And they, you know, and they sometimes it's childhood wounds that they're, st- you know, still having to heal or whatever it is, but." Bottom line is that usually is a is a, uh, a bottleneck in the companies.
0: You. I'll just share. You've hit a home run with me because that's something very interesting. I was in a corporate role. Two and a half years, I transitioned or reinvented myself into learning what it was like to be a business owner, create value, find customers, get referrals, and start learning about what it takes to run a business, making key decisions from an operations to cash flow to sales and development and marketing. And, you know, I then come across people who have already been entrepreneurs, consultants for many years, successful, and referrals would come in. And then they hit a place where they're stuck. And some people have been referred to me to talk to Deb. She reinvented herself. And I find that it's either in their mind or in the processes they followed before. At some point, conditions change and they can't help it. So they can't complain about the outside world. They have to change in order to accommodate what has changed in their environment. Do you see that as well?
1: I absolutely see that as well. And, you know, I I bet I wasn't there, but I bet someone said to their son or daughter, you know, you learn how to fix the steam engine and man, you'll be set for life, right? It's it's one of those type of comments. When we start up a business, so if we start a business, you know, I always teach start, stable, grow, scale, right? That's That's kind of the pathway. Most people are trying to scale a business before they have it stable. Most people are trying to scale a business before they grow it. Or they're trying to do all of it at one time. So we have to set a firm foundation into a company before we start scaling it if we want to grow with sanity. If we don't want to grow with sanity, then just sell away, right? Um, But eventually, it'll hit some type of critical mass where somebody's going to, you know, something's going to implode or get stuck or whatever. And usually it goes back to exactly what you said. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's the CEO or the business owner solely. It could be the uh, executive people that might be in the company. It could be the sales team. Uh, it could be anybody in the company. But traditionally, we as human beings, we go off of habitual patterns. And those patterns are those things that we learn from a very early age. So as much as I loved working with my dad, my dad was the type of guy who built a business on his back. And you know he was in business for, for 18 years that I knew. And one day after I had left for the military... He goes down there puts the key in the door and locks the door and he says that's it. You know <laughs> because he had so much stress going on in his life from the habitual behavior of building the business on his back. So when I got back up from basic training I'm like, "Well, dad, you've got all these years of client base, like let's sell this. Let's not just shut the door." And so we ended up doing, you know, traditionally, you know, we learn from mom, dad, preacher, teacher, whoever, kids, friends and Sometimes things hurt in those lessons and we tend to try to defend ourselves or protect ourselves by avoiding something or or pointing and blaming or judging or whatever we deflect it right but if you grow up in an environment that that's constantly going on you think it's normal and you think that's successful so that but the things that keep people safe when they're younger now they get into another environment, like you would say, a corporate environment or a, a business environment. Something as simple as, hey, you're supposed to be your own person. You're supposed to do everything by yourself and you're supposed to do that or you're not successful. Then you get thrown into a business environment where if you do that, you're going to get crushed. You've got to work with a team in order to be able to scale. you, you know, you got to be able to deal deal with team members. You can't be the only one doing everything by ourselves because if we do, we'll never get it all done. But those habitual behaviors... What continue to keep driving the, the behavior, and then and that usually is what gets stuck. So a lot of times I work with people on just how to reframe these things. And uh, break them out of the the cycle because a lot of times people are just angry, right? They're they're angry. They they're, their life is stuck. They're there. They're whatever. Mm-hmm. They're angry at whatever in the past. And we you know we work on those triggers. And once they unearth, then all of a sudden life just seems to change and their
0: business grows. There's so many questions I do want to ask you, but I want to come back to one point that you mentioned was you mentioned the phases about start, stable, scale. What does Stable look like because I want to be clear about that because I too am a growing business owner and I'm already saying oh my I have to be ready to scale I'm thinking about what the future looks like in terms of scaling some very future focus I see the a bigger game than what I'm playing right now but what does stable mean because I'm just curious from my own perspective of building a business
1: so it's it's really predictable. In the revenue, you can you can generate revenue again and again and again and again with little or a low effort. Once you get it to that place, mm. then you, you're, you're stable. you can count on the money. It's like when people go for a job and get a three-year contract, let's say, right they can count on that money for three years. so they have stability in, in, in most cases. same in a business. so we, we have predictable revenues and we have predictable processes. We have predictable systems. And when we get to that place, then we have a stable company. But, you know, and then from there, because you have the predictable income, you have the predictable there, you can now implement growth strategies to actually kick it up. Now, when you kick it up, it's going to become Possibly less predictable until you kick it up in the growth phase and then get it back where it's predictable again at a different level. But this is why people love like recurring businesses, right? Because a lot of times there's more predictability in that recurring revenue versus businesses who who don't have that recurring revenue.
0: So I'd love to take that in another direction based on that. You, you, you love to talk about what does it take to build a seven-figure business and what are those essential skills? So let's just say you got a great business model right now, but want to be able to grow it to the next level. What are some of those things that you need to put in place?
1: Well, I, I agree with this gentleman. His name is Brian Clayton. He owns a company called GreenPal. You have to grow as, as an individual. So there's a difference between a six-figure and multi-six-figure business but not that much. There's not a big difference between a multi six-figure business and a seven figure business, but there are differences. And there's certainly a difference from a six-figure business to a seven-figure business in most cases. So in order to do that, a lot of times we as the entrepreneur, we have to challenge the status quo of our own head because many people hold themselves back from growing because they lack let's say cash or cash flow at that time but what they really lack is resourcefulness because resources aren't usually the problem being resourceful is the challenge you know (laughs) i'll give you an example somebody was telling me the other day they they needed 15 fifteen thousand dollars and i was like okay what do you need it for they told me and i said okay and they go well i don't have it and i don't know how to get it i said well how many friends do you have? They go, oh, 300. I said, go, go ask your friends for $150 each. You only need 100 of them to actually give you the money. And you know, they did and went and did that and they got the money. So the bottom line is there's a lot of things that are there that when people are resourceful, they can actually make things happen. So, But that requires us as leaders in our own business to actually challenge our status quo. I always challenge people to grow at a minimum of 10% every year and the reason i do that is because if you do that over 3 to 5 years you'll get exponential growth because what it takes to go from 100 to 110,000 is a little bit different but not much than what you did but when you you jump from 100,000 or 110,000 to 250 now you got to add 25 and then when you jump from 250 you jump to 450 or whatever in a year because you're building these skill sets up along the way it's a fun game and that's, that's the one, one of the games I used to get to, you know, my first company to a million dollars was just keep growing by 10% a year. And it never grew by 10% a year, it always grew by more be, uh, because of the skill sets that I was getting. So fix our mind. Second thing would be, we've got to, we've got to work on the skill sets of the, the people and the, and the process uh, has to be in alignment And those skill sets. Sometimes of the people are ourselves. And I think also that, you know, knowing what we're never going to be good at because we just don't like it and learning how to do it but not doing it ourselves right so like i'll give you an example i absolutely hate accounting <laughs> you know i'm not that guy you too huh okay <laughs> now i don't hate accountants and i don't hate accountancy i just don't want to be an accountant but i need to understand what the numbers are in my business or in a client's business in order to affect the growth. So I sit down and I read books and I do all this stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, just push me off a bridge. I don't want to keep reading this stuff, but I force myself to do it. Uh, There's a gentleman, his name is Ray Zinn. And he's from, he was the longest standing CEO in Silicon Valley. And I had the pleasure of being able to talk with him several times. He sold his company off for a billion dollars. He was the majority owner of the company. I asked him, Ray, if you had to say one thing to somebody, he said, you do the tough things first. Yes. Right? Yes. I think that's very sage advice from a gentleman who, when I was talking with him, he's like, hold on, I got to confirm the confirmation for the the, the new new jet that is coming through. (laughs) He, He wanted a private jet, so he bought a $3 million jet. So smart guy. I really, really, really respect him and people like that. And I think the last thing is, Not only we got to learn and change our own, but we need to get mentors and outside relationships like Deb, like yourself, who can see the outside perspective that we can't see. You know, we might be driving in the car together and we're going along having a good time. And then somebody pulls up next to us and goes, Hey, 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 roll down your window. You roll it down. You go, the back tire is almost flat. And we're like, really? I didn't know that. So they can see from outside the vehicle, a different picture than we can see from inside the vehicle. And, and entrepreneurs in general tend to get themselves stuck in that. And they're not willing to invest in mentors. I constantly invest in mentors because they know more than I do. And it just keeps raising the bar. And again, 10% minimum growth every year.
0: So I talk about that in my book, The CEO's Compass, to get an outside perspective and mentorship because mentorship advocates, they can see things that you just can't see, and they can provide you the insight or ask you questions to try to find the answers yourself. So very, very helpful. And you brought up a couple things myself. I've Starting a business owner, I'm not quite up to your small size, your five, you know, two to five million, but I'll get there, I believe. But you know what? I had to update my own website. I had to do everything in Google spreadsheets just to understand the ins and outs, create my own scripts for my own business development process. But you know what? After some consistency and seeing what's working, I'm starting to automate it. Because ultimately, I don't need to be doing that. Because that's not the best use of my time. It's doing stuff like that, connecting with people to help other people with business. So I so appreciate that, Deb.
1: I have a question for you. Sure. Do you do you have a lot of coaches or consultants that listen to this podcast?
0: A bit, yeah.
1: All right. So here's you said something brilliant, and I wanted to I wanted to add on to it. Please. You've learned, and you did that with the spreadsheet, and you did all this type of thing, right? Something I've learned along the way is. If you want to learn something, you can go help someone else do it and have them pay you for it. (laughs) You know, for example, if they want something, an initiative to happen and you feel you can get it done, you may not even have the experience to get it done. You know, you're not going to hurt them, but you know, you can get it done. You can go out there, even if it's for a modest fee. And somebody will say yes, and therefore you get the experience, but you get paid for it as well.
0: It's it's sound advice. Any way to get that experience out there as well. So appreciate that. Now, you've been highly successful. You've helped others be highly successful. And I don't often go here, well, what were those challenges, mistakes, things that you learned along the way? I would be curious to sh- for you to share a story of what have you learned about business that maybe didn't get the result you wanted, but ha- what have you done t- going forward with that?
1: Oh gosh, that that list is so long. We could spend probably twenty hours on it. (laughs) But a couple of them, I can tell you right now. Here's the here's one thing that I had to learn. It took me a long time to learn it. But the market dictates what we sell. The market dictates what we sell. You know, because we as entrepreneurs always think, oh, we can monetize this. That'll work. This will work. You know, we're always optimists. We always got happy years, right? We're like hearing what we want to hear. But what I learned over the years. Is that no matter what you go into, if you figure out what the market wants and how they want it in their language that they speak, then you can create a better product because you're giving them exactly what they want. And guess what? They'll buy it quicker. <laughs> they'll, they'll tend to pay more for it without pushback. And it, there's just a whole bunch of wonderful stuff to, to be done. That is one thing that I've learned. The other thing is that. If you don't do that type of market research ahead of time, you may go do dumb things like invest, you know, in my case, $600,000 into an idea that just damn never worked. And for some people, $600,000 is like, oh, it was for me. For other people, it'd be like, okay, well, we do that every month anyways. We've invest that, we lose it, right? It really depends on the level of the company. But the bottom line is that you really want to figure out what you do, and you do not want to just plunge head into something without testing it first. If I had tested that market prior to, even if I didn't know what they did, I wouldn't have spent the $600,000. But I was so geared to make this work, right? So I know that people listening probably can relate to some of this story, maybe on different levels, but certainly know the market, do the research ahead of time, And at all costs, if you don't know, if you're going to do a new product or a new service, test the market first, because I could have tested that for $10,000 and saved myself 590,000.
0: You know, what you say is so powerful. I don't know whether we're doing some free consulting right here and our (laughs) listeners are just along for the ride here. But you know what? I did listen. I did see gaps in the market. I created an online course for emerging leaders that are not getting that mentorship or support in the corporate. And every one of them that went through the course, only five or six of them went through, but they said this was amazing and I got great reviews. We need to do more of that. So boom, small market, but they validated it the one-on-one coaching, I used to do it for free because people would refer me. I'd say, let me provide some value to you. Love to have a conversation on the hope it would be some business development. And I said, wait a second, there's a pattern here. They keep coming to me for some advice. I'll give a little value, but you know what? We need to monetize that. But the market validated it, started offering that. Boom, people are coming. So it's very interesting what you say. Test it. Don't worry if there's only one or two or three, but if there's strong validation, maybe invest a little bit more very, very powerful. So if somebody is about to, I don't know, take the plunge into being an entrepreneur, or they're about to take that next step, even if they don't connect with you, what are a couple few things they should be doing to either, I don't know, stabilize the business, do something to improve sales, because you're an expert in sales, what could they do now before maybe they even reach out to you?
1: There's three or four questions in there. So I'm going to try to answer. Look, if they're just starting a business out, Don't be in a rush. (laughs) Do the do the research first, as we just talked about, right? Figure out do you have a really solid business? And second thing is don't complicate the plan. These people who say, you know, you need a 37-page business plan. No. You need one page. Just write down what you want to accomplish in year one and then look at year one. You can certainly have a vision for year 10. The third thing would be anything you enter into a business you better be prepared to marry it because it is long-term in most cases. And the divorce is really expensive if you don't do it right. So if you plan on marrying it, that means you're going to build it for the long-term. Now, maybe you sell it, maybe you don't. But the reality is that if you don't sell it, you're building it for the long-term. So Don't be in such a rush. You know, a lot of times new entrepreneurs, especially starting up, they're like, oh my God, I got to make $500,000 in my first year or whatever, right? And they've never made $500,000 in their life ever. And it doesn't mean that they can't do it. It just means that let's get the benchmark for what we need year one. If it's 200, great, let's go for 500, but no, we have to hit the 200 and build a plan. So I I think that would be that for, for people starting up. And for people starting up and people in business, one of the big mistakes that a lot of people make in not growing their sales I'll plug myself besides hiring me um, no one of the <laughs> no, not hiring me I should say not hiring me but the massive prospecting like prospecting people are not prospecting enough and you know they think they are I just did, did an assessment on a company the other day and I asked the the reps how many, how many uh, people are you talking to a week? Oh, five to 10. I'm like, all week? They're like, yeah, five to 10. I'm like, you're 30% at quota. Do you think there's a correlation here? <laughs> so they're like, well, that, make, that makes sense. So what, what I found is people don't know how to prospect in a consistent basis. So therefore they're afraid of it so they don't actually do it. And I would challenge anybody that's listening to this to go get six, new methods over the next 12 months of how you're going to go after and get new business and put them into play and up your game of prospecting, because you and I were talking about the pandemic earlier on, how it's now starting to kind of stabilize and and kind of, you know, life's starting to get back to normal in the United States. Well, guess what? A lot of people and a lot of companies still think things are going on and, and they've been pulling back for a year and a half or two. and. If you, as their competition, put the pedal down and go out and talk to all the people who could possibly buy in and, and the market, when this market does turn around and every single market always does, we're going to be top of mind and they're going to come to us in, 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 in big droves. So the last time the real estate market turned, uh, Deb, I, uh, a construction company came to me. They were doing 15 million a year. And they said to me, what should we do? We're going we're gonna to lay off our staff. We're going to pull back, blah, blah. They said, "What do you think?" I go, "That's really not probably a smart idea." They said, "Well, what do you mean?" I said, "You need to do the opposite." I said, "Because what you're doing is what your competitors are doing, and all the people that you wanted to hire are all going to be out there looking for jobs at this point." And there are buyers today. We, yeah, it might be you know 50 percent harder to get them, but they're there. So let's go out and let's blaze a trail for the next year, year and a half, or so. And they went from 15 million to 150 million in two years. The bottom line is massive (sighs) prospecting.
0: Great advice. And you know what? Our listeners were just along for the ride. It was tremendous advice for me. But I know our listeners are going to take pieces of what you said. Prospecting. It should be just part of everything we do, whether we're in sales, trying to build, I don't know, meet people in the neighborhood, build a community, human connection. That's what it's about because ultimately that's going to come back and help you. I have loved, loved this conversation because if nothing else, you validated the journey I'm on with building a business. But I know business leaders and hopefully CEOs that know something is just not right. They should connect with you. Are there any last closing thoughts or things you want to plug shamelessly about you and who you can serve?
1: (laughs) I love the plugging shamelessly thing. That's awesome. Yeah, I wrote a book. I think people should go read the book. I I was, I've been shocked. Honestly, I've written four books in my life. I never released them. And then um, my now wife came to me one time and she said, "Hey, you just wrote a new book." She she said, "On what?" I said, "On human communication and objections." sales objections or just objections in general she goes oh that's an interesting topic she goes can I look at your manuscript I said yeah 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 and so you know she looked at it and she goes wait a minute this book looks older I said oh yeah I I wrote it two years ago I just rewrote it and she goes let me ask you a question and so she started going through the process that I was teaching in the book And, and her final closing question for me was did you you know first question was, Doug, why did you do this? Why did you write this book? And I said, I wanted to help people because, you know, aside from gathering leads, usually the pushback that they get in the sales process is the number two thing that really kind of you know sets them and sits them down from from getting the sale. They don't know how to handle the communication that's going on. She goes, Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And then at the end of her questioning, she asked me, So I have a question. And I said, What, hun? She goes, how are you ever going to help people unless you release this book? <laughs> right? And so two months later, the book went into publication and went out there and, and became a number one bestseller in four countries. And I just had somebody, you know, I've had this happen three or four times in the last couple months. But somebody put this, they, they actually buy the books and they actually make every one of their employees read it. And so it's part of the fabric of their life. So you never know, you know, when you put something out there. So the book's called Win-Win Selling, Unlocking the Power of Profitability by Resolving Objections. And it's by Doug C. Brown. And you can get the book at winwinsellingbook.com if you want to go get that there. And, uh, you know, if people want to get a hold of me, you know, Doug Brown1234 is my LinkedIn. Doug at businesssuccessfactors.com is my email. Well, they can just call us at 603-595-0303. I have, you know, smart family members working in the company.
0: So I am grateful for this interview. You know, I went in because I knew you were an expert in sales, but you also helped me immensely and anybody in there that is thinking in whatever they do, whether they're still in a corporate job or they're an owner of a business, how to get where they need to go and they need an external resource. So Doug C. Brown, grateful for the conversation. I do wish you continued success.
1: Thank you, Deb. Thank you again for having me
0: on. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. My new book, The CEO's Compass, will change the way you think about leadership, navigate rapid transformation, and elevate the leaders of tomorrow. If you're feeling off track, The CEO's Compass assessment will guide you to peace of mind in days, not months. You can learn more about the CEO's Compass by visiting my website at dropinceo.com. Now go out and lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.